Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Luke Haskell Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, make way for the hammer of heretics himself. Luke Haskell. talking about the Mass being the real Passover. Why don't you explain what you mean by that? Well, when people think of the Mass in our faith, uh, most focus on the Eucharist, of the Eucharist, having that intimate relationship with Christ in the Eucharist. And I don't know how many Catholics really understand this, but along with that Eucharist uh, being given to us as grace given freely in this, the primary purpose of that Eucharist is salvation and it is uh for the general redemption of the world. And uh, we'll develop this in layers. But uh, when we look at scripture, you know, it's, it's a seamless fabric, but it, it's also like a fugue. It's an entire sonata played across, you know, the, you know, the, the old and new Testament. And it's, Mystery is outside of the concept of time. Origen explained that uh, to truly understand scripture, you need to see it as a triune mystery. So he saw these different aspects of the old covenant and and the new covenant and fulfilled in the church. And when we address this, I I want uh, our audience to keep this in the back of your mind. So the Holy Mass is before the Father is the general redemption of the world. There's no individual salvation without the general redemption. Satan's mind is so superior and so cunning and so evil that he has Protestants attacking their own general redemption without even knowing it. Now, our church is guided by the Holy Spirit, and you find the depths of these mysteries in plain text of Scripture because Christ has said, do not give what is holy to the dogs and not cash or pearls before the swine or they will tear you. 
So the deepest mysteries due to the, the sacredness and due to persecution, you know, the letters were, were kind of veiled. Paul says if our, you know, if our gospel veiled, it be veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Well, it was veiled to those outside the church. Inside the church, they're being taught these spiritual realities. Uh, if we look at in the catechism under uh, 1340, we read, by celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus passing over to his father by his death and resurrection, the new Passover is anticipated in the supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final of the church in the glory of the kingdom. So at the Last Supper, when Jesus began to put in place his new covenant priesthood, he said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. So this in itself is just is such an amazing thing when you, when you think about it. Uh, uh, Jesus, God, who established the Passover for the Jews, in the flesh, in the incarnation, this was his main purpose of the incarnation. 1,300 years later, he said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. And what is so more it's almost amazing? like... I'm sorry. Let me interject here. So it's almost like he's saying strongly desire to fulfill this Passover with you. Am, am, am I right? Well, it's it's fulfilled uh, in, in the Mass. He's establishing the true Passover and, and fulfilling the type. And what is more amazing is as Catholics, we know that these words were not for a one-time event. Like uh, you know, like I was saying, the, the origin talks about this triune reality of Scripture. But this is part of the new covenant, where as our true Melchizedek, as our true mediator, the body, he celebrates his Passover with us at every holy mass, where he spiritually takes his body to heaven. When Paul says you are the body of Christ. When he says those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body, when he talks about Christ being the head of the body, these are not metaphors. Paul, who was given this vision from heaven at his word. It's the spiritual reality. And in the the purpose of that is that the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, as the body with the head of the body, participates in the general redemption of the world with the host of the host the host of heavens. Right. So uh, if you would look at first Corinthians eleven twenty four, it says, And giving thanks broke and said, My body, which shall be delivered for you, do this in commemoration of me. Well, this word remembrance, uh, Protestants get caught up in this, and they try to use it against Catholics. And they say, see, we're just supposed to remember this. It's just, it's symbolic. But if they go deep into the understanding of the first century church and 
barely anything was symbolic because we're fulfilling types. We don't go from type to type, but from reality. And in Greek, the word uh, uh, that we that we use for remembrance is a nomnesis. And remembrance does not do this word justice because it has sacrificial overtones. It, it, you have to see it through the Jewish understanding. It occurs eight times in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament. And there's only one time where it's not in a sacrificial context. And uh, the remaining two occurrences of anomnesis in Luke 22:19 and 1 Corinthians 11:24, Christ's words, do this in remembrance of me, it can only be translated as offer this for my memorial sacrifice. Given the sacrificial character of the Eucharist, there's, uh, there's really no doubt in this translation because we see it lived out in, in, even in the first century church. And we see this in the prophecy of Malachi chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11, uh, 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 Malachi is, is, is one of the prophets, and he's basically showing us the coming of the Mass, where he says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and every place there is sacrifice. There is offered in my name a clean oblation, in my name a clean oblation. My name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord. So what we see here is a prophecy of a time when will offer sacrifice worthy of God. So I would ask my Protestant brothers and sisters, do you believe scripture? This is a prophecy of Gentiles offering a sacrifice worthy of God after the cross, and Gentiles did not begin to enter the promise that Abraham fulfilled until Peter first baptized Cornelius and his family. So what's worthy of God? The only thing worthy of God is his own son. Right. So, so what, the apostolic church... Go ahead. So what, what we're seeing is not... It, it, it's, it's not a... Um, it's not a token celebration it's not a memorial in in the sense of uh uh you know like laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier or something like that which is uh sacred and you know in its own right but this is something much more this is is not a it's not a um depiction of a sacrifice it's actually an, an actual recreation it's actually an actual Participation in in the in the true sacrifice it is the sacramental process of how Jesus redeemed the world, and we don't sacrifice Christ over and over again. There's two parts to a Jewish sacrifice. There's the slaying of the victim and the offering up of the fruit, and so we have to look at this through Jewish eyes. Uh, like I've said over and over again, Protestants look at Scripture through the construct of anti-Catholicism, this, this construct that was set up in order to separate from the church. Well, Catholics look at Scripture through the lens of a Jewish convert. So the apostolic church picked up on this prophecy of Malachi, and they, they actually confirmed for us that the prophecy was all about the Mass, 
in the Didache, it says, Assemble on the Lord's Day and break bread. Offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults, so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow, his fellow is not to take part with you until he has been reconciled, so as to avoid any profanation of your sacrifice. This is the offering of which the Lord has said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of the Gentiles, or the wonder of the nations. So we have here in 70 AD the teaching of the apostles confirming Malachi 1.11 as the Holy Mass. And this, like, like I was saying, there, there's two parts to the Mass. The offering, uh, the, the uh, killing of the sacrifice and offering up of the fruit. So the killing was Christ going to the cross willfully. And he put in place the offering of the fruit in the true Passover. And we look at what the purpose of the Passover was. Well, the Jews were in Egypt, which was a symbol for sin. And the Jews were told to take an unblemished lamb. Christ is an unblemished lamb. Spread the blood upon the, the, the lentil and doorposts. Well, if your body was a lentil and doorpost, where would you spread the blood? Right. Name it would be in the shape of a cross. Yes. Name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is how we are also baptized. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we understand that uh, baptism is being saved by the blood of the Lamb. So we enter this door through, through baptism. This is the fugue. This is, this is the, uh, the triune mystery. So we enter this door through baptism, and what do we see there? We see the Jewish family, or do we see the church, or do we see the fulfillment? Because what happens next? They consume the entire lamb so the angel of death would pass over. So this lamb, which Christ himself says he is the true lamb of God, is the true Passover, and Christ himself said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. So we have a symbol of the, you know, what is going to be fulfilled, type and reality, from the Jewish Passover to the heavenly reality of the Passover, which we enter through our baptism. Right. So... We think, how did the church get here when it comes to this belief? Uh, it did so through the three-leg stool of scripture, magisterium, and tradition, and its formation of doctrine guided by the Holy Spirit. It did so through the understanding of type and heavenly reality. That was in the heart of the church from the beginning. And Paul gives us the direction in Hebrews 9 when he wrote, The former, indeed, had also justifications of divine service, in a sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made the first, and there were candlesticks and the table and the setting forth of the loaves, which is called the holy. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden censer and the ark of the testament covered 
about on every part with gold, in which was a golden pot that had manna and the rod of Aaron that had blossomed and tables of the testament, and over it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the propitiatory, of which it is not now needful to speak now particularly. So here we see typology. In typology, we hear Paul basically saying, hush, this is for the church. This is sacred. And as the church fathers who began to reveal this, and as this is in the heart of the church, all of these things become in the heavenly reality of salvation through Christ and his church. So this right here is also a death blow to the soul of Scriptura, of which it is not now needful to speak now particularly. There's nowhere else in Scripture where, where, where so it's left to the church. But if we look at this image, and uh, I found something fascinating when I was reading. I, I think it was uh, – uh, oh, Matt, I read so many. I think it was Grant Petrie, uh, uh, mm-hmm. The Jewish Roots. Yeah. And, uh, Grant Petrie wrote that, yes. Yeah. And in that, he showed one of the traditions of, of the Jewish uh, priests. And every high holy day, they would take the, uh, the, the, the table of the bread of the presence uh, with the ring, and they would take it outside and raise it to among all the people who came for the high holy days. And they said, be, and they would say, "Behold, God's love for you." Well, the bread of the presence is—it is in Jewish law that it always needs to be before God. The bread of the presence is in the holies. The shefna cloud uh, uh, consecrates what's in the holies. This, this is the spirit of God, and what is consecrated is God's love for you. And again, in type. The bread of the presence must always be before me. Therefore, in the image of the Passover is also the image of the bread of the presence that always needs to be before the Father. Why? Because the Father needs to see the Lamb before he sees the sins of the world. And this buffer, this veil, before the sins of the world is the I'm sorry, you broke up in that last part. Could you repeat that again? So the the bread of the presence is fulfilled in the Eucharist, and the bread of the presence always has to be before the Father. So Christ is seen in heaven as a lamb of sacrifice. So the Father always sees the lamb of the sacrifice and the Holy Mass as the general redemption of the world before he came the world. So there is no individual salvation without the general redemption. <laughs> so that's what the entire Passover was about. So why don't you break that down? How is the, how is the Passover meal foreshadowing this? The Passover celebration foreshadowing this. Well, we could go uh, just at the beginning of, of the life of Christ and begin to see the imagery. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which Bethlehem means means house of bread. He is placed in the manger, which is 
a, a food trough for animals. He says, I, he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. David was chosen in, in Bethlehem. Jesus is in the line of David as king, which makes Mary queen mother. The shepherds of Bethlehem raised the sheep for sacrifice in the temple. Jesus was placed in swaddling clothes. Uh, the lambs were swaddled, the baby lambs, so that they would be protected, so they would be unblemished. And the wisdom of Solomon says, I was nursed in swaddling clothes, and that was with cares. So uh, David was a type for Christ. For there is no king that had any other beginning of birth. So thousands of lambs are sacrificed every morning and every evening. The lambs were skewered from top to bottom and side to side in the form of a cross. You would walk through areas before the temple, and you would see just tons of lambs, you know, crucified. And the priest ate the sacrifice, of course. And now fulfilled, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So the Passover lamb was unblemished, swaddled, protected. It was killed. And blood was splattered on the lintel and doorpost, like we, like we discussed. And so the true Passover for the general redemption of the world uh, is, is the Mass. Uh, the, in addition to uh, being saved by the Lamb, bread fell from heaven, which is another sign of, of the Eucharist and salvation through this bread, the true bread. They lived, uh, the Israelites lived off of it for 40 years in, in the desert. So when Christ says, I am, I am the true uh, bread from heaven, if we look at types compared to heavenly realities, the type that preserved the life of the Israelites for 40 years in the desert is minimal compared to the heavenly reality of the Eucharist, the true manna, the true bread from heaven. Right. So, so it, it, why do you go ahead? So, why do you think it, this is so difficult for our Protestant brothers and sisters to see this? I think it's, you know, Paul talks. We we, we talked about this in, in, in earlier discussions. We talked about obedience to the faith, and God established this obedience to the faith uh, for our benefit. He doesn't need us. So obedience to the faith in the sacramental life leads our souls to deeper understanding of the spiritual mystery. When we go to Mass, when we see the Eucharist, when we hear the priest say, this is the Lamb of God, you know, we pick up on these things where Protestants don't. When they read Scripture, they read it from the construct of, that was developed to separate them from the original church. So anytime they see something that is blatantly Catholic, such as my flesh is true food, they always go to the thought of symbolic. And you cannot enter understanding of our salvation through distancing yourself from the Catholic theology. Right. So at, at what point, I know that, that 
Protestantism kind of evolved over the last hundred years, and uh, you know, from when Luther started his his uh, you know his revolt with his ninety five thesis uh, uh, nailed to the uh, church door in Wittenberg. Um, at what point did Protestantism start to, in in large part, break away from from the mass and from the sacrament? Did that happen right away, or or was that kind of an evolution? Well, I think it happened fast because you even have Calvin, you know, saying that. Uh, you know, talking about there being no salvation without even receiving the Eucharist. So, and you have Calvin being disgusted over denominationalism. So Calvin, a generation right after Luther, is seeing all these denominations, and he's seeing a complete removal of the sacraments, and it just went downhill from there. There's and yet it was Calvin that brought us this this idea of once saved always saved, which which by consequence would would nullify the mass. Um, it, it's kind of this this, and we, we've talked about it in previous shows. This basically redefinition of faith into basically intellectual and verbal assent rather than something that we have to participate in. And that kind of moved us into this notion that, uh, well, we, we can't merit salvation. We can't do anything good. We're, we're not, we're not capable. And, and on some level they're right. We're not, we're not capable, not without grace, but well, stating that very visible reality they move us from the very source of grace that we need in order to merit salvation, in order to participate uh, with with uh, with God's plan. I mean, you see the devil's hand all over this. It's really, when you think about it, it's very, very clever what the devil did. He created a new ideology in which it seems like we're glorifying God, giving God the glory while at the same time we're pushing his saving help away. Yeah, I just I just don't understand it. It's uh you have some pretty convoluted thinking when it comes to these uh original reformers. On one hand they're talking about once save, always save, and on the other hand they're saying that uh, you need the Eucharist. So there's just when once you get into this sola scriptura it just, you know, it creates a body of confusion. Uh, if we were to, you know, go back and, and find more confirmation for the Eucharist, uh, there's things that I, I think, you know, the original form, reformers, they, they just, you know, they just had to ignore uh the ones who didn't believe in, in the Eucharist, the next generation after that. Uh, an example is even in the Our Father. In the Our Father, we say, give us this day our, our daily bread. Well, hidden in this 
in, in, a, in this Greek, you know, uh, almost, almost a poetic uh, prayer here is the word epiusius. And it's a unique word. It's, it's sacramental in nature. And it occurs nowhere else in the Greek Bible uh, except in the Our Father. And uh, you see it uh, in, in, the, in the Didache also. But uh, uh, the early church fathers, uh, they had this master of the Greek language, uh, origin uh, specifically. And he believed that Epiusius was invented by the uh, by the evangelists, by, by you know by, uh, by the gospel writers, and uh, he explained that uh, it, it was a new word, and the usual Greek word for daily himera is uh, after all used elsewhere in the New Testament, but not in this instance. So we need to ask why did Saint Matthew and Saint Luke feel compelled to create a new Greek word? to accurately reflect words of Jesus. So they most likely had to use this word because we're going way beyond just simple bread. So uh, Jerome also also talks about it uh, as being supernatural uh, bread or bread from heaven. Uh, so this supernatural bread is what we ask for uh, in the Our Father, right before we receive the Eucharist, in which we have been doing so for two thousand years. So, so it's there's... impossible. So it's impossible to to correctly understand the Our Father out of the context of it of uh, of it, or at least that part of it being essentially a Eucharistic prayer. Exactly, because the word is is something that, that didn't even exist before, and it could have been used as the word for bread. You know, is 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 a word that's everywhere. So they are giving us a special meaning, and in doing this, again, we we have to look at the spiritual uh, nature of what was going on and the sacredness of what was going on. Because the most sacred thing in the universe is the Holy Mass. So they're showing us the sacredness to those who believe in the Eucharist right here. So then how would the apostles have – go back to when, when Jesus is actually making this prayer, when Jesus is actually teaching us the Our Father. And, and in, the, in that context, how would they have actually understood it at that time? They wouldn't have. When, uh, when, uh, uh, let's go back to what we were talking about uh, with John six. Uh, Jesus is, is giving language that upset the you know, the entire crowd. He uses the word trogos when it comes to unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. There, there's no metaphorical understanding of trogos. It means to masticate, to chew. Mm-hmm. So unless you chew my, you eat my, you know, chew up my body and drink my blood, you should have no life in you. So the the, the crowd knew what he was saying according to the language he was using. So Jesus Christ is either telling the truth, or he's one of the worst communicators there there is. 
So, so what you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, Luke, is that as shocking as his words were in John 6, this part of the Lord's Prayer would have also been as shocking. It would have been something that in the context of the hearing of it wouldn't have made any sense. It was only till later that it would come to make sense. It becomes to make sense uh, due to that transformation. Uh, Christ going to Peter and he's saying, you know, will you also leave? And Peter says, where shall we go? You have the rewards of eternal life. So right there, Peter understands that the words of eternal life include, you must eat my body and drink my blood. But he doesn't, you know, visualize how this is going to happen. But he accepts it through faith. And later at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they were infused with this, you know, this gift of God and even a spiritual wisdom, it all came together. Mm-hmm. That's, um, it, it really is fascinating when you think about it because the, the amount of faith that had to be exercised by Peter and the apostles at this point because a lot of things that Jesus was saying at this point sounded absurd. I mean, there's no way they could have been, there's no way on an intellectual level they could have processed the things that Jesus were saying. And as you pointed out, they were completely unprecedented. And it's it's fascinating because you contract it, contrast that with our Protestant brothers and sisters and their soul scriptura mentality that must understand to believe this is this turns that completely on 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 its ear. It's it's I believe so that I'll later understand. They 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 they're really operating in blind faith to the point where that this this would be impossible for a adherent of sola scriptura. Well, the same Paul says the cup of benediction that we bless is this not participation in the blood of Christ says that spiritual things need to be spiritually examined and the sensual man perceive not these things. So we have been given the gift through our sacramental life of this entering into spiritual mystery, this Christ consciousness, this body. And it gives us a huge advantage of, of, of interpreting the scriptures because we live the scriptures Protestant lives, and I, I hate to say it, and it sounds cruel, but you cannot have, you know, unity without establishing, establishing truth. But Protestant lives in a construct of anti-Catholicism. Right. It was set up for that purpose. Uh, some individuals did, want, want, did not want to be Catholic, so they looked at Scripture, and while in their fallen nature, they picked out specific verses, and they said, well, I could go away, uh, I could remove myself from the Catholic Church through this understanding. If I create this understanding, I can do that. And so that whole situation created a body of false exegesis 
novel concepts and definitions that became what Protestants looked through. And uh, they don't, uh, they, they can't see the spiritual reality. Uh, I'll give you uh, more confirmation to, to the spiritual reality. Uh, in the Passover Seder, there's four cups of blessing, and there's three pieces of matzah in the Seder. The third piece of matzah, which is hidden uh, and eaten last, is called the afikoman. And uh, I was doing some and this is just fascinating. Uh, there's some, some Jewish rabbis who say that the, this means that which comes last, the afikoman. But in the Greek, there was uh, a Jewish historian, I think his name was Bod, and he says in the Greek it means the coming one. Hmm. So we have we have right there, you know, uh, this this knowledge of the coming of Christ, and we have the presentation of the Eucharist until the coming of Christ, and we know this because those who are saved by the blood of the Lamb, baptized in the church, he says, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. So it is spiritual poetry. It is the seamless fabric. It is the love story between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom played out across, you know, the, the scriptures. And it's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So talk about the third cup. Well, the third cup is is the cup of blessing. That's the and blessing we get benediction, we get eucharistasis. So the cup of thanksgiving. And at the third cup, uh, Christ put down the third cup and says, "I will not drink of the uh, the fruit of the vine until I enter my Father's kingdom." Well, he goes into the garden, and what does he pray? He prays tears of blood, and to, as fully God. Uh, my understanding is, or, or what I believe is that he probably saw every single sin committed in this world for all time. He saw, you know, all the desecration. Uh, he saw, you know, the murdered babies. He saw the immorality. And he cried tears of, tears of blood. And he said, Father, let this cup pass. Well, if we look at the setter, there's still one cup left. So after the fourth cup, the Jews would repeat, I will be your God and you will be my people. If we read Psalms 22, Jesus giving us entrance into this psalm. And when you hear the beginning of the psalm, all the Jews would understand to follow in the song of the rest of the psalm. And it begins with, why have you forsaken me? which Christ said from the cross. And it culminates with, I will declare my name in a great church. So it is finished. It is consummated. I will build my church. I will declare my name in the great church. It is finished. The true Passover has been established. So I will call those my people who are not my people, and they shall say, thou art my God, as the prophet Amos says. Christians are supposed to go beyond the material reality and believe God. And belief is obedience. Like we discussed last week, it's like a benevolent father. The child does not understand, but he knows what 
the father is saying is for his benefit, is good for him. And the apostles were Jews who never understood belief outside of a covenant relationship with God that requires obedience to the faith. So it was God who became flesh, who came and said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Sabbath with you, who also said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in memory of me. So why is it that when Jesus was crying out from the cross, they did, there were some that didn't recognize that and thought he was calling out for Elijah or or what have you? They were the I, Jews of the first century were very familiar with the Psalms. Why didn't they recognize? Why didn't they make the connection? I think they were simply in cognitive dissonance. I think they were blinded. Because at the same time that Christ is on the cross, you know, the Jews as a whole in tradition were praying the 18 benedictions. And in the 18 benedictions, they are praying for their savior. They're praying for uh, their new king. They're praying mm-hmm. for redemption. They were even uh, in the prayer talking about the, the praying for the dead to rise. And what happened? The dead rose. <laughs> so there, there, there's so much depth uh, that, that Catholicism has and expresses in, in, in these mysteries. It's just, uh, you know, you can study it all your life and, and, and just scratch the surface. Right. So let's take a real quick break right now. We're going to take a real quick commercial break. And then I want you to talk about just exactly what goes on uh, in the Mass in terms of what happens when we receive uh, the Eucharist. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Right now, we got to hear from our sponsors. Got to pay the bills. And we'll be right back on the four persons. How gone? Top Gun of Virginia has been serving the East Coast with quality swimming pool shot creek and gunite applications for over 35 years. The strong legacy of craftsmanship that Top Gun has garnered is backed by the pride we take in creating a lasting product. Top Gun will help you stay on schedule and within budget while still maintaining the level of quality control and safety that is expected from a name with 35 years of experience. Top Gun. Top Gun of Virginia is a premier supplier of commercial shotcrete and gunite services on the East Coast. Shotcrete and gunite are forms of pneumatically applied concrete which can be used to build or repair structures. Shotcrete and gunite can perform jobs which are not possible or are more difficult with traditional form and pour concrete applications. Top Gun uses our own volumetric trucks to apply engineer-certified mixes of both wet and dry process applications to meet any need. Top Gun. Top Gun is located at 10017 Richmond Highway, Lorton, Virginia, 22079. You can reach them at 
888-550-9207 or email them at info at topgungunite.com. Make sure you mention that you heard this ad on the 4 Persons Podcast. Looking for a Catholic counselor? Dr. Peter Claponis, Deb Rojas, and the team at Integrity Counseling Services provide faithful Catholic counseling in Pennsylvania and beyond. We offer telehealth and in-person counseling for porn addiction, betrayal trauma, anxiety, depression, marriage counseling, and much more. You can find us at IntegrityCounselingPA.com or 610-601-9781. That's IntegrityCounselingPA.com or 610 610- 601-9781. Looking for a Catholic counselor or coach? Dr. Fred Boley provides faithful Catholic counseling and coaching for men in Missouri and beyond. He conveniently offers telehealth services for anxiety, depression, marriage counseling, or just getting stuff done. You can find him at stbarn.org or 872-269-1280. Once again, the number is 872-269-1280. She is a Catholic recording artist, multi-award winning songwriter. She sings contemporary and folk rock music. She has been in the music industry for over five years. Her music is her ministry. She aims to help people that suffer from all kinds of pain in life and try to bring them to the Lord through her music. She has three albums out and her music is being played on radio stations all over the world. Her website is lisamarinacole.com and she is on social media. Her music page is Facebook.com Lisa Songs of Worship. YouTube at Lisa M. Nicole. Instagram Lisa underscore Marie underscore Nicole underscore official. Her songs can be purchased on her website, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and everywhere else. Her merchandise store has everything for her ministry and can be accessed through her website. Her new CDs will be available very soon and can be purchased through her website. She counts herself blessed that God has chosen her to help spread his message. She is Lisa Marie Nicole. Get her music today. The Four Persons Network asks our Catholic friends to check out and join the fast-growing Catholic website message board, and community at Catholicism Rock. The quality and diversity of contributors is breathtaking and the content spans everything from education to news and commentary and spiritual insight. Partners of the four persons and our friends. Please check them out at catholicismrocks.com. We now return to the regular program on your only real Catholic defenders of the deeper truth of our sacred faith, the Four Persons. And we're back on the Four Persons. Luke, we've talked in the past about how some of our Protestant brothers and sisters see 
Infant baptism is an ordinance. It's something we do. It's a, it's a symbol. It really doesn't mean anything. They see the same thing in the Mass. They see the same thing in the Eucharist. And, and they see it as a work that we perform, kind of trying to check something off, check a box off, to kind of earn our way into heaven. Luke, they couldn't be any 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 more wrong. Uh, explain exactly what's happening when we receive the Eucharist and exactly what it does for us in our in our journey of faith. The sacraments are not works, and their emphasis on works is also, as we discussed in the past, a false understanding, not differentiating between the first legislation of Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and the second legislation, the curse of the law, uh, the pedagogy, the strict schoolmaster for a child, all of the the, the uh, ritual laws and, and plus circumcision, uh, all, 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 uh, all the ritual laws are given uh, as the strict schoolmaster. And uh, so they don't differentiate this. So they see sacraments as works, which is, you know, far from the truth. Sacraments are, are grace given freely. So in, in order to get get there, the image of the mass, uh, let's supply a little more apologetics and reason to Scripture. Now, Paul says the cup of benedict, benediction that we bless is this not participation in the blood of Christ. Well, obviously, if we're looking at the word benediction, this is a blessing. So is it the blood of Christ before the blessing or after? Obviously after. You know. uh, so Paul is basically saying this is the blood of the Christ there. And you can't get around these words. There's, there's, no, there's no metaphor here. And he puts it together by saying those that partake of the one bread are part of the one body. So sacramental nature, these are not works this is grace given freely to enter the body of Christ, participate in that body in this marriage feast, which, which Augustine describes the mass as. So if Paul did not believe the Eucharist was true, then he would never have said these things. Behold Israel, according to flesh, are not those who offer partakers of the altar. He would never have said, we have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of. Uh, he would never have said, oh, you foolish Galatians, who before your very eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you. He would never have said, Christ, our true pas- Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. So uh, the, you have to ignore so much. These things to the mass. This is the mass. They were living the mass. So in the Mass, we had the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And back to 150 AD, you see in the writings of Justin Martyr, you, you see the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, it talks about uh, reading the Gospels before uh, the, the president, the, the priest, the one in charge, uh, takes the bread and wine and consecrates it. So in the liturgy of the Eucharist, you know, we begin with the Our Father, and we're asking for our bread from heaven. And the priest uh, is 
they're in the image of Christ. And just like Paul was, Paul says that uh, he was a minister to the Gentiles to offer an oblation through the Holy Spirit. Bonaeus said all the apostles were priests. So if you go back to Malachi 1.11, Paul does not contradict that when he says he's a minister to the Gentiles who offers an, an oblation. Uh, because Malachi 1.11 says, My name is great among Gentiles, and rising the sun to send a clean oblation will be offered in my name. Paul is confirming this. So we are looking at this image of this, which is an unbloody sacrifice. And we discussed the difference between uh, the the sacrifice and the offering up the fruit of the sacrifice in Jewish understanding. And so in the fulfillment in the true Passover, Christ has gone to the cross. Christ has offered himself, yet the presentation of this uh, the presentation of this offering, according to Melchizedek, is what was put in place. And in the mass, uh, instead of a shekna cloud, the uh, the, uh, uh, the image of the shekna consecrating that is God's love for us, we have the priest in his very words calling down the Holy Spirit to make the bread and wine the body and blood of Christ. So, And then this body and blood of Christ is with the body, with Christ as head of the body and mediator to the Father in this true Passover, is offered to the Father then as those who participate in, in, in the altar also eat of the altar. So the, uh, the, the whole process is what God put in place for our general redemption. That offering to the Father is, like I said, the veil between the sins of the world and us. And mm-hmm. since we are the chosen people, the holy nation, the, we are given that grace of the Eucharist. And that grace of the Eucharist the Eucharist doesn't save. Understanding the through faith that we must live, you know, a holy life in order to truly receive the Eucharist is part of our salvation. Right. Isn't it interesting, Luke? They say all the right things. They'll 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 throw Ephesians uh, chapter two at us where it says by grace you have been saved through faith it is a free gift of God. Uh, they'll say uh, I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, the I'm saved by the blood of Christ, and and yet they reject the very sacraments that give us that free grace. They reject the very Eucharist that gives us that body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It it it's very striking. It's it it strikes me to be the very fulfillment of what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy about a people who will hold a form of godliness, a pretense of religion, while denying its power. What's occurring here? Yeah, and I, and I think it goes back to that false contra construct. 
And uh, so many people are just caught up and they're blinded by this false conscience too. Well, put together everything we've said, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, the works, grace, faith, works, uh, by grace you're saved. Okay. The prophecy fulfilled, the laws written on our heart, as opposed to the Mosaic law of Jews only, for Jews only, of rule, fear, and temporal punishment, is, is, is grace given freely. All the sacraments are grace given freely through faith. Well, Paul calls us to obedience to the faith. He says, do this in memory of me. So true faith does not operate outside of obedience, living the new covenant, not of works that anyone may boast. Well, who was doing the boasting? We go to uh, the, you know, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, Pharisees who believed. Uh, they're most likely baptized in the church. They're boasting about keeping the Mosaic law, the ritual laws, at the same time they're living the Christian faith. So there's, there's your boast. It has nothing to do with works in general because Paul says out of faith, hope, and charity, the greatest of these is charity. Charity is being Christ to man. So then we go on, and, and, and Paul says uh, that we are his workmanship created in good works. And he gives a disclaimer, provided that you walk in them. So right there, uh, you know, so many times you have verses that Protestants use against Catholics that actually when proper exegesis is applied. Right. Right. And, and uh, what they don't understand, what the Jews didn't get is that they weren't saved by the, by the Mosaic law because everything in the old Testament is pointing forward. There, these are shadows of things to come. These are not the fulfillment, but they're the shadows of the, of the things to come. Uh, and then our Protestant brothers and sisters want to look back and they want to do the opposite. They want to ignore all the shadows. They want to ignore everything of the old covenant. And because they ignore the old covenant, they can't understand the new covenant. So from both sides, they're kind of tied in knots by superimposing their own ideology on the, on the scripture rather than taking it through the lens of the church and understanding what's actually being revealed here. And you look at these things and, you know, like the laws of Leviticus, I mean, God's a logical God. You know, you know in, in uh, Leviticus, it talks about not eating the blood of the animal because, you know, uh, if you're eating the blood, you, you become part of the animal. And, does that make sense on its surface? No, it, it really doesn't. You know, it goes against our biology. Either the blood of the animal, you know, you know maybe your body rejects it, you know, <laughs> but you do not become, you know, the animal. You know? So when you have this imagery and then you fulfill that imagery in Christ, what does Paul say? The cup of benediction that we bless. Is this not participation in the blood of Christ? So these types are to give our souls, a soul in humility, the image of the spiritual reality of what uh, uh, Christ in, in this amazing, you know, expression of love, you know, to the heart is expressing to us. You know, uh, this is the reason why Peter had his vision uh, in his vision before the Council of Jerusalem 
he had this vision where he saw all these uh, animals that the Jews consider unclean. And what, what does, you know, the Holy Spirit or the, or the one in this vision say to him, take, eat what God has, what God has, uh, you know, basically consecrated uh, is available for you to eat. There's nothing, there's uh, nothing that prevents you from eating this anymore. Uh, Peter called it uncommon. It says what God has consecrated, do not call it uncommon. Well, it was in preparation for the Eucharist. Right. Because this is my body, what God has consecrated. Do not call uncommon. <laughs> right. Luke, I want to thank you again for another uh, fantastic show. Very, very educational. Um, in honor of today, which is the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart, um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to end with a prayer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and uh, pray it on both our behalfs, and offer it to the souls suffering in purgatory. Would you be okay with that? Of course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O most holy heart of Jesus, fountain of every blessing, I adore you, I love you, and with a lively sorrow for my sins, I offer you this poor heart of mine. Make me humble, patient, pure, and wholly obedient to your will. Grant, good Jesus, that I may live in you and for you. Protect me in the midst of danger. Comfort me in my afflictions. Give me health of body, assistance in my temporal needs, your blessings on all that I do, and the grace of a holy death. Within your heart, I place my every care in every need. Let them come to you with humble trust, saying, Heart of Jesus, help me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I can't wait till next Saturday to continue this conversation. Luke, God bless. You have a wonderful weekend, and uh, happy Father's Day to you and your family. You too. God bless.